Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Serve on the rocks. rocks. This week, we talked to Dr. Meredith Craven. Dr. Craven is a licensed clinical health psychologist. She's the director of GI Health Psychology in the Division of Gastroenterology and Heptology at Stanford. We talked to her about gut-directed hypnotherapy and other brain-gut behavioral therapies. We talk a lot about her research in health disparities and diversity, equity, inclusion in the IBD space. And we talked to her about her interest in and practice of yoga and how that can be helpful for patients living with inflammatory bowel disease. We had such a great conversation with Dr. Craven, and we know you'll love her just as much as we did. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bowel Moments. This is Robin. Hey guys, this is Alicia and we could not be more excited to have our guest on. We are joined by Dr. Meredith Craven. Dr. Craven, welcome to the show. We have so many questions for you. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. Now, first question for you though, very unprofessional. What are you drinking? So it is three uh, o'clock on the West Coast on Thursday. So it's a little too early It's a, since it's a weekday. But right now I'm drinking water with lemon through a straw. And then maybe later tonight, I would love a margarita. Ooh, I do love Spicy. A I had a carrot margarita for the first time the other day. Like I know, right? That was my face as well. It was delicious. It was carrot juice and like tequila and obviously some lime as well. I it felt like I was eating a salad Healthy really. This option. Was, <laughs> yeah. This was this was me like, look, I'm having salad for dinner instead of a <laughs> margarita. Robin, what are you drinking? I am drinking, I wasn't too sure about it when I made it, but I thought it would be too strong. But I'm drinking a lovely ginger and lemon tea. Sometimes when you have ginger drinks, the ginger is just overpowering, but this is just a very delicate, lovely ginger and lemon tea. Well, and sometimes I feel like ginger can overpower other flavors too. That's like yeah. my beef with it every once in a while. Cause like, yeah, you put ginger in and it's like, then it's like ginger, you know, it's like mm-hmm. with a capital G. Right. So. <laughs> Absolutely. What are you drinking, Alicia? I got real excited. I'm drinking a Hugo spritz, which is oh. not at all what I remember making but it is a Hugo spritz. It's elderflower liqueur, Prosecco and mint and a little bit of, a little bit of sparkling water as well. It's really nice. That sounds good. That sounds refreshing. It It sounds like you need to rename it to the Alicia spritz. Something, something besides Hugo. Anyway, this is not about my proclivity to drink alcohol. It's about you, Dr. Craven. So cheers. Number one, thank you for joining us. Cheers. Happy to be here. Next question for you. What is your IBD connection? What brought you into our community? Why are you a GI psychologist? Yeah. So IBD does run in my family. I have two family members with ulcerative colitis. And so that's something that always has stood out to me and the impact that, you know, GI conditions can have on someone's mood, on their ability to function and travel and the extra like gear that they may require of, you know, taking enemas through TSA pre-check and people opening, oh, you've been randomly selected and there are some enemas in the bag. So I think, you know, just seeing my own family members' experiences and struggles, but also resilience really inspired me to become more involved in health generally, and then focus more on, on health psychology. 
Um, and then in particular for, for GI psychology, the field has technically been around since I think the the seventies and eighties, but it's been more of a recent explosion where we're getting more support around the brain gut connection, the brain gut micro microbiome connection and how important it is to take care of one's mental health in order to take care of one's physical health. Um, and I have like my own experiences with this of being an athlete. I tore my ACL in college and that recovery process. So much of it was mental, you know, making sure that I wasn't just taking care of my physical health, but during the recovery, that mind body connection, you know, the power of the mind to either get in the way of recovery or to really encourage healing and my ability to bounce back. So always been fascinated by mind, body, brain, gut connection. And once I heard about the field uh, and learned that you get to talk about poop and make, you know, poop jokes professionally, I was like, oh, this sounds right up my alley. It's really fascinating that a GI psych has been around that long because you're right. I feel like this is something we're hearing about now. It does not feel like it was a concept that somebody else like created that long ago. So I love though, that this is becoming so much more common for us to see a GI psychologist as part of a a team, because you're right. There's so many aspects of this that are complicated by either like mental health complications, but also this new understanding or maybe a better understanding of the brain gut connection and sort of what that might mean. Can we stay there for a little bit and talk a little bit more about that in case people are not as familiar with this? How did people even start looking at this idea of the brain and gut being connected in this like intimate kind of way? And what have you seen this evolve into? Okay. Oh gosh. I would need to go back into my <laughs> uh, history book because there is this right. um, book that talks about the history of it in the seventies and eighties. I think it really is reflective of the biopsychosocial model, understanding that you know, the body isn't just a machine. There's a person uh, in their context, uh, in the society in which they grow up in, the family, their culture. So part of this reflects, okay, we're acknowledging that context really matters. A person's social upbringing and their psychology can impact the functioning of their body. Oh, actually, yeah. So originally GI, the field of gastroenterology was more focused on medication and behavioral treatments, actually. So it's been more recent that the shift was focusing more on like procedures like endoscopy, colonoscopy. So prior to that, you would really need to treat based off of what symptoms the patient was describing. And a lot of times some of those treatments were, okay, let's Let's think about stress management. Let's think about the way that these symptoms are impacting your functioning and ability to do day-to-day activities and how can we target that? So we can see, you know, benefits of gut-directed hypnotherapy, CBT, and then it kind of shifted more into these procedures that you have higher reimbursement and you can actually find out a lot more in terms of what's going on with the patient's gut functioning through these. So these procedures are important, but we can't forget about all of the benefits of everything else, like these behavioral medicine approaches. Let's talk about gut hypnotherapy. That's I think super, super interesting and not a hugely well-known thing. There's not a lot of people trained in this, right? 
So not specific. Yeah. So medical, so just a little bit of background, like medical hypnotherapy has actually been around for hundreds of years and has been used in many different cultures. Um, So that's always something that I want to remember, recognize is like, where do a lot of our treatments come from? So for example, diaphragmatic breathing is a treatment that I teach all of my patients, but breathing techniques have been used in many different cultures, especially like Eastern traditional approaches like yoga really heavily rely on breathing, but sometimes when they become, when they join the medical field, sometimes uh, it's forgotten where, where these practices come from, but to circle back to, to medical hypnotherapy, it's been around for hundreds of years used in many different cultures. And it was actually the original surgical anesthesia, I believe. So it's been used, it was used during the civil war on the battlefield to help, you know, as physicians would have to amputate limbs, et cetera. It was uh, somewhat effective anesthesia. So since then, we've come to learn that it can be medical hypnotherapy can be applied in gastrointestinal or digestive disorders. So really we're taking advantage of that brain gut connection. And when we're using medical hypnotherapy, we're helping um, patients get into a special mental state of trance, of hypnotic trance. And this is actually something we experience throughout the day about like, I think 85% of the population is hypnotizable. So most people actually experience the state of trance. A good example is when you're at the movie theater and the lights go low and the film starts and everything just fades away and you're completely consumed by the film. That's a state of trance. Or if you all of a sudden are pulling up, you're driving and you're pulling up into your driveway and you're like, whoa, I do not remember the drive. How did I get here? You might've been in a state of trance. So that's why I always like to tell patients like we're taking advantage of a special mental state that you already naturally experience. And sometimes people get a little nervous. They're familiar with the stage show or what they see and, you know, the movie get out of like, oh, is this mind control? Are you going to make me quack like a duck, bark like a dog? And I'm like, no, you will have complete control. Basically what we're doing is we're helping your body relax and we're allowing the mind to go into a focused um, yet open mental state. And this is where we're actually targeting the subconscious mind. And the subconscious mind isn't very judgmental. It's just open and receptive to different imagery and suggestion. So what a gut-directed hypnotherapy session would look like is the therapist, the trained therapist, yes, so you need training in this, guides the individual into a very relaxed physical and mental state. And then we'll provide suggestions, often through the use of imagery and nature. So it might might be something like imagining a river flowing that's free of obstruction and that can be applied to your body. And so this helps, you know, visualizations of a calm, balanced, functioning digestive um, system. And this can reduce gut hypersensitivity. It could decrease visceral hypervigilance. It can change the way that the brain is responding to pain, almost like turning down the volume on pain or even ignoring messages from the gut. So it's basically kind of like retraining the brain to have more control over the gut. And and we know that there's so many benefits and many different digestive um, disorders and specifically within IBD, we see the most benefit for patients with ulcerative colitis. Uh, And then in disorders of gut brain interaction, there are just so many 
benefits there too. That is so cool. And I also love the fact that a, I would love to listen to you do one of these guided meditations, like hypnotic sort of, you have like the perfect voice for it, but also as you were describing it, your voice got like slower and lower. And I was like, I love that. She's like, pull it. She's pulling it out of the bag right now and showing us. She's, it was so good. She's showing us. Yes. It was very cool. I was thinking that exact thing. I'm like, I have to come off mute just to say, please just keep talking. <laughs> oh, gosh, gosh, thank Dr. you. Craven. This is so good. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, that was a really great explanation. And I think it will help a lot of people if this is allow offered to them mm-hmm. feel much more confident in it. Cause you're right. I think so many people just like hear hypnosis or hypnotherapy and immediately, like you said, think of a stage show and it's, or think mm-hmm. that they're going to be manipulated in some way. And it's not at all. That's not the case. You know, it, like you said, it's sort of just opening up your horizon a little bit more to allow for some suspension of disbelief maybe is kind of part of it. Yeah. And, and that's the important part is just being open and receptive to whatever is going to happen in that moment. And the more open you can be, the the better benefits um, you'll receive. And patients do have complete control. It's really up to you whether or not you want to take the suggestion that is given. That's very cool. And I think it could be just, like you said, turning that dial down a little bit for some folks just might be the thing that allows them to stay out of the emergency room or, you know, really manage to an end of a day so that they can start again tomorrow fresh and new. What are some other, cause one of the other things that it, you have other brain gut behavior techniques that you work on with people as well. So what are those and how do they work? Gut directed hypnotherapy actually is a form of brain gut behavior therapy. So that's an umbrella uh, term for treatments that are taking advantage of that brain gut connection. So we're using therapies that have worked in anxiety and depression and we're applying them and the, these, you know, all of these have support through research. There've been randomized control trials for these behavior therapies, but basically these therapies recognize that there's a strong connection between the brain and the gut. And when we can modify behaviors, when we can modify emotions, when we can modify thoughts, then that can improve gut functioning, as well as emotional outcomes. So the the major brain gut behavior therapies, there's cognitive behavioral therapy. So I'm guessing a lot of people are probably familiar with that CBT. Um, That's been around since the seventies was created for depression and has gone on to have many applications across the board for both mental health and physical health conditions. And in CBT, you know, the whole basis of this is there's a connection between our thoughts, emotions, physical sensations, and behaviors. So sometimes I'll present this model as a vicious cycle where I'm like, okay, you have a symptom. And then, so let's say you're, you start having stomach pain and your automatic thought is, uh oh, here we go again. And you start feeling anxious. And then you start paying even more attention to your body. And then you start avoiding social situations. And at the same time, your body is going into a state of fight or flight, which leads to even worse symptoms. So you get stuck in this vicious cycle where you're feeling worse physically, but also you're avoiding, you know, a lot of important or meaningful activities. So in CBT, the whole idea is if we can change one part of the cycle, then we can change the other parts. So if we can change the way that you think about your symptoms, the way that you behave when they come up, 
then we can get you out of that cycle. So we're really targeting, you know, we're identifying unhelpful thoughts or beliefs. We're helping patients learn different coping strategies like relaxation. You know, if they're avoiding something a lot, we'll target exposure but we're really targeting all those different parts of the, the vicious cycle. Um, so that's, that's CBT. There's also acceptance and commitment therapy. There is growing research around the benefits of this. So this is um, acceptance and commitment therapy is called ACT. And it's actually, it's referred to as a third wave therapy after CBT. So it is founded in CBT, but takes a different approach to thoughts. So CBT is all about challenging and changing thoughts. Whereas acceptance and commitment therapy, it's in the name. Can we accept the things that we don't have control over? So we don't have control over our thoughts, our emotions, our physical sensations. And once we can accept that we don't have control and that we can accept, oh, sometimes these thoughts will come and go. These emotions will come and go. These sensations will come and go. That can create more space so we can commit to valued actions. So this is all about, okay, accepting what's out of our control and focusing on what we can do in the moment that will allow us to have a more meaningful or enriched life that will add to a sense of vitality. So interventions and act, it's very mindfulness-based. So there's a lot of mindfulness meditation, body scans, and more so it's not focusing on the symptoms but focusing on the life that you want to lead, even in the context of these uncomfortable or burdensome symptoms. And then other brain gut behavioral behavior therapies include like mindfulness-based intervention. So like mindfulness-based stress reduction, or just more like mindful or meditation practices. And then finally, there is psychodynamic therapy, but I don't really practice that. I don't know a ton about it, but a lot of people um, do get benefit from, from psychodynamic. So that's what's really nice about brain gut behavioral therapies is I think that there is something for everyone, like no matter what your style is, if you, you know, are more focused on, okay, I really need to challenge and change thoughts, or I really want to let things come and go and be more relaxed and mindful. We can find an approach that really works, works for each individual patient. And then finally, yeah, that is what's nice about all of these approaches is that they can be individualized for the person. I do really like that because I think it feels a little bit like a buffet, right? You can kind of pick and choose what what works best for people. And that, you know, if it is somebody who is at a place where they are really forward thinking and really contemplating their future, like that, great. This is a great option for them. Whereas there's other people that just in that moment need to say, I just need to change this thing. And that will kind of help me progress in the right direction. And so I, I like that you have a lot of options and can kind of move back and forth with people into what maybe makes the most sense, even as it relates to where they're at, depending on when you're working with them. So I think that's really great. I think, I mean, it's just, there's, there's so much involved in this and, and because you're working with a chronic illness, there's, it probably also changes on people's lifespan. Like where are they at in their life? What are they looking at? in how you're going to work with them, because that's going to vary kind of as they go into different stages of their disease and different stages of their life. Dr. Craven, one of the things that you also work on is health disparities and looking at that as exploring this as an underlying 
aspect of inflammatory bowel disease, but also, you know, just mental health in general. So talk about your work there. Are there pieces of it that you're looking at right now? And then do you have kind of an eye vision for where you want to go? Or like, how did you, how did you get started in this area? Cause I feel like this is kind of one of those things that everybody's like, this is important and I'm working on this, but this is such a big topic. It isn't just, I mean, health disparities is so huge. So how did you yeah. get started? Where did you start and kind of what do you want to see happen with this? Yes. I mean, it is health disparities is a huge topic. It's a complex topic. And, you know, when we're, when we're talking about it, we're really talking about the unequal access to quality care differences in outcomes, differences in access. And it could be, you know, based off of any type of identity factor, but we do see it most in terms of race, socioeconomic status, and and gender. And I first learned about it um, when getting my master's in public health. I have an MPH from Emory and just learning about, okay, the outcomes that we're seeing, the differences based off of race or income, these aren't accidental. This actually reflects a system in which people do not have the same access to the care that they need. And it's not fair just because of these arbitrary things, like how much money you have or the color of your skin, that that can actually impact your health and your health outcomes. So, you know, to me, like learning about this injustice and how unfair it it was really hit home. And and two, like I'm from Atlanta, which is um, home to really important pieces of the civil rights movement. And so that's always kind of in the forefront of my mind is how can we always be seeking justice and equity? And, you know, there's that saying like an injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere. And that is something that that I truly believe. And so I think that helps guide my work. Um, so some of the research that I've done has been looking at, you know, are people even including race, ethnicity, gender, these important identity factors in their research? Because if we don't have these identity factors, then we can't identify disparities. And depending on location, so it could be even within the United States or globally, um, they may or may not be collecting these identity factors, or they may be collecting them not fully. But I mean, it's hard because globally people think about race or ethnicity very differently. But I think what matters is we're collecting the data, we're getting these identity factors in the data. And when we have the data that can help us identify that disparities exist. So I think that's an important piece is just even collecting this type of information. And specifically within IBD, we can see that there are disparities that exist based off of, in particular, race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic economic status, you know, who gets prescribed a biologic, you can, you know, do regression analyses and see that racial disparities exist there. So who's getting diagnosed and when there are certain diseases where black, Hispanic, and Asian individuals are diagnosed later compared to, to white individuals. And this is huge because a delayed diagnosis is going to impact treatment and outcomes. So I don't have a research project that I'm working on right now that's looking at disparities, but I 
think about it in the way that I approach care of trying to make sure that the care I'm providing is equitable, trying to think about how we can increase access to, you know, psychogastroenterology or GI health psychology, and how can I integrate important identity factors into therapy with patients. My curiosity is if you notice a difference in people's response or outreach to you as a psychologist, do you see any pattern of people that are perhaps reticent to come to you and talk to you just because of cultural factors or mistrust of frankly, the medical system that frankly is justified, you know? So I'm curious Mm -hmm. if you see that. Yeah, I think, you know, part of what I see, I, you do see certain Groups, I think, can sometimes have messages around, you know, is it appropriate to talk about mental health or they really want to focus more on, okay, it's not my mental health, it's something physical that's going on. And that's when I can talk about, well, it's it's both. It's the brain-gut connection. But I think it would be interesting to do research around the referral process because I get referrals. So I would be interested, okay, who is getting referred versus who isn't getting referred? The majority of my patients tend to be female. And I think it's also kind of dependent on where you're located in the United States, like what type of race, ethnicity you'll see or are more likely to see. I feel lucky in that my patients are very diverse. And I think once you you know, sit down with an individual and talk to them about what their important identities are, the role of culture in their health. Once you start asking these types of questions, people I think open up more and can reveal whether or not they buy into therapy or some of their worries about it. So I think you can see trends culturally, but I wouldn't necessarily want to say, oh, like all of my Southeast Asians do this or all my black patients do this because there is that influence of some of those of that culture, but then there's like the the individual within it moving through that. So individually, I can say, you know, I have worked with a few um, Southeast Asian patients who have talked about struggling, even just having any type of medical diagnosis um, and how that can be viewed within their culture, especially from a desirability of partner standpoint of, okay, you're, this person is sick, so they're not a desirable partner. And then if you layer on, okay, let's use therapy. I've had patients whose parents are like, no, we don't believe in that. We want to use this other, you know, traditional medicines. And I'm like, let's bring it all in. As long as it's not contraindicated, you know, with the medication they're currently taking, like let's bring in that important cultural practice. And what might it be like to explore therapy too? As an entry point, I'd be interested to know And this is just me. I don't even know if you could measure this. How many people have asked for referral to mental health and then didn't get it also? Not only just that referral coming from this physician, but patients asking for it and not getting it too. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like there's probably more of that out there than we would like to find out about. Right. Yeah. Or assuming that this patient doesn't need it or assuming they wouldn't be interested in it. I guess I kind of laughed a little bit when you're like, most of my practice is women because I, I, I feel like it's because a lot of times by the time the women have actually gotten to a gastroenterologist who's had confirmed they have a diagnosis, they've been called crazy about seven times, if not mm-hmm. more, you know? Right. And so it's all in your head, right? Mm-hmm. There's like maybe this underlying, like, well, there could be an aspect of this that, you know, sort of a, a more of an acceptance that's already there to, you know, 
explore this, this side of things, but I mean, that's just a thought. And, you know, it's interesting because we were talking to one of, one of the doctors runs all of the clinical trials for a huge private practice group. And so they do clinical trials all around the country. And I asked him like, as part of your protocol, do you ask people to identify their culture, basically their race, their ethnicity, like as part of what you're doing to ensure that you're getting a broad swath of people. And he kind of, he stopped and goes, we'll do that, but we probably should. And so, you know, even <laughs> just even that where like, it, because you don't know what you don't know. So you don't know exactly. if like people are going to react differently to medications or to the delivery mechanism, or just having that understanding of like, also, do you have enough women in your group? Do you have enough people of different races, colors, ethnicities that are participating in this? So you have a really broad understanding of what this medication is going to be like, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and I thought that was kind of funny. I'm like, how did we not do that? Like, that feels like the first thing we ask, but even that is problematic because it still takes this huge group of different cultures and ethnicities and makes them say, here's your list of six things to choose from. Right. You know, maybe that's not what you identify as. Yes. Know. And then there's so much variability within group of how you identify. Yeah. And I think what's, what's really interesting too, this is kind of like the next phase of disparities work is as AI is being more integrated into our everyday world, but in particular into our medical system, we're already seeing that AI is flawed, you know, because these are algorithms that are written by humans that have biases. And then they're just like, you know, being implemented. And we're seeing that there are differences in outcomes based off of AI algorithms that have already been integrated into some medical systems. Uh, so this is, oh. yeah, there was a recent story of, it was an algorithm that focused on patients who were being discharged and helping identify patients who needed more resources. And part of the algorithm was medical spending. So medical spending was a proxy for, I think, how severe the patient's illness was. But they found that Black patients and other minority patients were being recommended to be given less resources, whereas the white patients were recommended to have more resources because white patients tended to be able to spend more. So their healthcare spending was higher because they had more resources. So we can see that, you know, AI has a lot of, I think it's going to have be very beneficial and helpful, but we really need to be careful, especially when thinking about disparities of like, are we just going to further perpetuate our biases and disparities in these systems that are written by, by humans with biases? Yeah. I mean, you're just perpetuating the inequality that comes from people not getting the same access to these resources that frankly are usually limited resources too. So, you know, financial assistance for patients, sometimes there's a limit and you mm -hmm. get to the end of the dollars and there's no more assistance left. And yeah, you have a bunch of people who missed out on it. So that's, that is super fascinating. Right. And there's even work around, you know, AI being able to diagnose dermatological conditions, but depending on the photo that's used, that, you know, photo, there's a like long history of like photos not being able to pick up different skin tones. And then yeah. whether or not you're using a flash, that's going to impact the skin tone. So it really, it's like, 
the more that you think about it, it's just like can impact every single thing. So yeah, we just, I think have to be really thoughtful of, okay, like what are the issues that we're struggling with in our society? Those are going to be reflected in our healthcare system. So we need to all be more intentional and thoughtful and really approaching our patients individually. But it's it's tough too, because the system itself needs to change. Like the system Mm -hmm. is based off of revenue rather than you know, patient health and outcomes. Oh, Dr. Craven. Oh, say it loud. Say it louder for the people in the back. I mean, honestly. It's not anything we haven't talked about before and railed (laughs) against. I mean, it's fine. We'll have to to do some more taking cold and throwing them exercises because yeah, we've gotten real fired up about this because, but Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's, it's really fascinating to think about even like whoever wrote the code for this AI has their lens that they look at the world through. And then you look at like the people who are in these types of businesses, they all tend to be like young white men that are the ones writing these codes and things like that. And just, I hadn't even thought about the fact that yes, all of this comes from a very different lens and perspective than vast majority of the the country. And so this is going to have that ramification as it starts to be implemented that why this wild I'm, I'm having a moment here where my mind is a little bit blown. And then how do you fix that? Because the, the answer is to hire more people of color and women into these types of roles. And that's, that's its own separate can of worms. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, and I think it just goes back to, you know, the more diversity we can get and diversity in all its forms, not just like phenotypically what someone looks like, but their life experience, the languages that they speak, because there's a lot of hidden diversity. And, and that's why I'm always trying to think about my, you know, my patients as individuals. And so even if just someone, you know, we always talk about like white male, the patriarchy, but there's diversity within that too. And it's yeah, so yeah. important, you know, to, to treat everybody as individuals. This is such an onion. I think we're really just mm-hmm. very much on the surface of even starting to explore this as we, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and as we keep pulling things back and as more and more things are getting introduced, I think it will be really, really fascinating to see where this goes, but I'm mm-hmm. glad you're working on it because clearly yeah. there are pieces of this that like, like even like people being prescribed biologics, like, mm-hmm. yeah. like what? Yeah. Why is that so something I that actually, changes? okay. So this is a really interesting conversation. And I brought this up with a gastroenterologist, like while I was in training, I was interested in this disparities work and was trying to tell this older male gastroenterologist about disparities and pointed out, okay, you know, certain groups are more likely than others to be prescribed biologics. And he's like, yeah, well, I do that. If a patient can afford it, I just won't prescribe it. And I just was so flabbergasted because he wasn't making the connection that that's a bias that you are promoting this disparity because you're deciding just based off of what you think someone's socioeconomic status is, whether or not they can afford it. And guess what? There certain groups are more likely to be of lower SES. So I think the good news is this, this um, gastroenterologist has like come around to disparities work, I think as it's become more popular, but that was definitely an eye-opening experience where people, I think, don't always understand what healthcare disparities are and their role in perpetuating it or preventing it and like tearing, tearing this down of, can we approach all of our patients equitably and help them get the resources they need and not base our 
treatment recommendations off of whether or not we think someone can afford something. Our assumptions. Assumptions, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I've, I've actually said before, IBD does not discriminate and neither should all of we. Yeah. We should just let treat everybody, let everybody have access, which, you know, that's a perfect world with rainbows and sunshines and glitter shooting out of everybody's butt instead of poop. <laughs> Nobody likes glitter, Robin. That's not a perfect world. Glitter is the devil. Oh, no, but- apparently there's a eco-friendly glitter now. Great. <laughs> I like everywhere. It still gets everywhere and it cannot be removed. It's like the, it's the thing that's going to live forever. Even if it's, I'm sorry, yeah, I mentioned glitter. Friendly. I didn't know it was no, going to be a trigger for you. No, so I think it's wonderful. It's just like, I still have some in my carpet from somebody's kid coming over two years ago. So I'm like, yeah, glitter is terrible. But what you bring up though is a really important point though, because there's so often that the health disparities piece becomes a, an assumption that we're also talking about low income. And those mm-hmm. are different things, you know, that those are like, yes, there are low income people and yes, there's, that needs to be something we address, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're talking about people of color, you know? And so, and I, Mm -hmm. and I've, I've caught myself being guilty of this as well, being like, well, but we have to look at this, you know, this thing. And of course, having access to treatment and medication for people who are of lower income is super, super, super important, but that doesn't, necessarily mean it is this specific group of people, you know, like, so I just, I feel like divorcing these two a little bit, like, and making sure that we're talking about different things when we're talking about health equity, sometimes like that's just because we're talking about people of color doesn't mean we're talking about services for people who are low income. Yes. And that's actually kind of like going back to like, you know, the conversation around civil rights that was you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he wanted to focus more on economic equality because no matter what racial or ethnic background you have, anybody, you know, can experience poverty. And that's really what can bring people together. And, you know, he had a campaign in 1968 called the Poor People's March, and that was held in Washington, D.C. So, you know, people, I think, kind of forget about this, that he wasn't just focused on racial equality, but equality for everybody. And that that was something that I think an issue that is just as important as racial equality is just equality, uh, gender equality, but also this economic equality. And that really can bring all of us together, no matter what identity um, someone has. Yeah. I, I do think that's really important because the ramifications of that are so huge. Like people not having access to good healthcare and the medications they need, especially when you have a chronic illness means that, you know, all of these other things are going to be significantly harder, if not impossible for you. You know, like if you're not well enough to work, you can't get yourself out of a situation where you are low income and and living in poverty, you know, and our system is not set up to really support these people in a very effective way. You know, like supplemental security income is like what, $600 a month. If that's your source of income and you have to basically have nothing in order to get that, like no assets, no resources, nobody can live on that, you know? And so if you have somebody who is diagnosed with an illness super young and they don't have anything to fall back on, we're not setting them up in any way that's going to allow them to have any meaningful interaction with the world that we have in the United States, which requires money essentially, mm-hmm. you know, and usually that means also having Medicaid, which again is not a system that's super easy to access and 
the resources are limited. And so it's like, you know, there's the ripple just keeps going and going and going and going for, you know, this, the economic injustice that can kind of go with this. And especially for people with chronic illnesses. So sorry, I'm a social worker and I'm fired up over here. I love it. I was thinking that was so well said. (laughs) Thank thank you. I've had a couple of drinks. It helps. (laughs) So the next stage is really looking at AI and some of these other things. Are there other aspects of this that you think are really like important, especially since a lot of our audience is patients? Is there some way that they can kind of make sure they're highlighting injustices they see in ways that will be accepted? I think sometimes this is hard because you end up getting perhaps your hand slapped for being difficult or you get fired by your doctor like some folks. But, you know, like, is there are there ways for people to be able to highlight the needs that they see within their healthcare systems? And then also, is there just generally an initiative too that's happening in these healthcare systems to bring people of color into sort of like advisory committees or things that are helping to really look at the systemic things that are happening that could be Mm -hmm. changed? Yeah. So I think from the patient perspective, advocating for yourself is so important and, you know, finding a provider with whom you feel comfortable. I also understand that that may not always be available to everybody based off of your insurance or location. But I think as best as you can, you know, preparing for that doctor's appointment, writing down the list of questions you have, what your concerns are. And if there's something important that you want to share with a provider that helps you feel more connected to them, or that you believe will help them see you as more of an individual, as more of a person rather than just, okay, like here's this body system, machine, biomedical model. No, like, okay, hi, I have Crohn's disease and it's getting in the way. I have this upcoming vacation that I really am excited excited for. I want to be able to go. How can we make sure I reach this goal? So I think really humanizing care. So, you know, having specific goals, even outside of your physical health can be really important um, and helpful for that provider to make a connection with you on a peer to peer, human to human. And even like sharing photos could be really powerful of like, Hey, can I show you a picture of my kid or my dog? Like, and the person will be more likely to remember, you know, member you or make that uh, deep, deep connection. So I think kind of from the patient perspective, and of course, always like becoming involved in advocacy, like writing letters to politicians and to like following up with insurance or the hospital in terms of if you're getting a bill that you don't agree with, making a little bit of noise can make a big difference, even though the system shouldn't be that way. It is. From system perspectives, I think that this is definitely an area in in which hospitals are trying to focus more on. You know, we see a really positive outcome of the Black Lives Matter movement has been more of this focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, and now it's kind of going into JEDI, which is justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So if people are really focused on how can we bring in um, more providers, more students of color into med school? How can we make sure that we're keeping these um, physicians of color in higher education or um, in positions of power? So there is some movement towards this and more research being done around disparities and how we can improve the healthcare system. But there's also a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, Because again, I think you can kind of see this across the board is like, 
who are in the highest seats of power, who is making the financial decisions, what identities do those people tend to hold, and can we have more diversity there? So I think, you know, just thinking about it at every single level where change needs to happen and what we can do as individuals, but also as a, as a collective. And I think even just having this conversation, like, it's, it's helpful to hear that other people care about these types of things because it can, this work can become really tiring. So knowing that there's, you're not alone in this, um, we're, we all want to see this positive change uh, together. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, it does take everybody saying this is important, I think, or, you know, vast majority of people, not everybody, but vast majority of people saying this is important and this is what needs to change. You know, it reminds me of a conversation I had. I was, I went to coalition meeting, whatever, ended up chatting with this man who works for incontinent. It's like an incontinence nonprofit. I'd have to look it up. And, you know, he was talking about, we got talking about like, you know, research they'd done. And one of the things they researched is that like, are you more comfortable going to a, to a provider that looks like you? And so they did these like focus groups throughout the country. And he said there was one group that just sort of like everybody went because it was large majority of the people they talked to were black women, African-American women who had like kidney disorders, basically that, that had some urinary incontinence and all of the, like, and they asked them, would you be more comfortable going to a provider that looks like you? And they were like, that's not possible because all of the urologists in that entire area where they were at, were all white men, all of them, they weren't even women, they were white men in particular. And so they just were like, no, I wouldn't feel more comfortable because like there just isn't. And so it's mm -hmm. like, you know, the fact yeah. that there's like no, no urologists of color, no urologists that are women in this area. And I'm thinking, how is this possible? So even like, is there, should we be looking at that to say like, Hey, like we really want to make sure. And so I was like, so I said, did you talk to like the hospital systems, that area to like highlight this and say, is there a way to recruit specifically for this? But like, you know, it's also a rural area. There's lots of stuff that was at play there, but it was really just, I kind of was like, what there's. Yeah. None. It's, it's mind blowing because if you look at rates of like, who's getting into medical school, women, yeah, that has gone up exponentially, which is, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, and minority groups like black indigenous people of color, there's some, you know, increases, but honestly, we haven't seen that big of a difference since the 70s. Like there are still just not enough providers of, of color. But the good news is um, for that study that you're mentioning, like people, I think, generally do feel more comfortable when they have a provider that looks like them. Yeah. But there is some recent research that shows even just having a provider in the area that looks like you, even if you don't, even if they're not your primary provider, even if you don't see them, knowing that that person exists is associated with better outcomes. So that's, yeah. So that's, I, I would have to find that study, but I just heard about it. So that's like the power of representation. You don't even need to like be with that individual, but just knowing that, you know, they exist, that they, you know, you might be able to have access to them that can make a powerful difference. It feels like it maybe instills a little bit of trust in the system that you didn't have before because you're like, okay, I, the system at least recognizes that they need providers like of color that, or that they're not actively recruiting only white people kind of thing. You know, like, I feel like that helps a little bit so that you feel a little more confident that they do care. 
but right. that, is, that is wild. I'm like so curious about this study now, but now I'll have to find it. I'm going to have so much Googling to do. <laughs> well, but even I just, even in medical school though, I mean, this, this, I'm imagining the stats probably haven't changed too much in that, like women who are in medical school also tend to go into things like OB-GYN and general practice and kind of filter into some specific areas much more than going into stuff like cardiology or orthopedic surgery, surgery and things that are sort of more traditionally men, you know? And mm-hmm. so there's, there's even still kind of probably some things that haven't shifted within, within medical school that still sort of puts people into buckets that were unintended maybe, or that still oh. keeping people in a certain way. Yeah. And even what's being taught in medical school, like I just heard, I think this was on NPR where there's still a large percentage of medical students who are being taught or who at least believe that minority patients have higher pain tolerance than their white counterparts. Me. I heard that yes. as well. Yes. Yes. So, pardon, okay. Pardon this me. Is- Excuse me. No, I don't think I heard what you said correctly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So if this is what they're being taught in medical school, it makes sense why these disparities and outcomes are just being perpetuated and and continued. Yeah. That's why we see people being under-medicated when they show up for pain in in emergency rooms, because there's this weird belief that won't go away, that there's some sort of difference in, in how people experience pain because of their skin color, which makes absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. So bizarre. Yeah. Oh God. We have a long way to go, but what an uplifting. <laughs> Let's all have a drink. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Dr. Craven. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> I am. I am happy to hear that, that there is focus on this and you do feel like there's movement happening and that we are seeing how this is incorporated in a little bit more. So I, that, that does give me hope for this because again, the moment that I go, Oh God, we have so far to go. We have come very far too. And, you know, like, let's celebrate that piece, but no, while also knowing that it's not enough. You know, I think that's the important piece is to say, great, good. We're getting there. We're getting better, but this isn't anywhere close to equitable yet. Yes. And one more MLK reference. So it's um, one of, one of my favorite quotes of his, which relates his conversation is the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So that always kind of keeps me going. I'm like, okay, just keep going because eventually we'll make it. Yes. Yeah. I hope that arc is a little bit more of a, a a shorter curve than a longer curve, hopefully. We'll yeah. see some strides, bigger strides in our, in our lifetime. And my lifetime is shorter than yours. So let's go with my lifetime, not yours. Okay. I'm going to switch gears on you right now so that we can bring us back to that calm and relaxing place that we started when you were hypnotizing both of us. I always tell people, it's actually kind of a cliche when I recommend to people, have you tried yoga? Because it's one of those things that everyone that ends up on a meme, right? What not to tell people with chronic illness, but personally, I feel like it has helped me. And so just with that mindful practice, and especially now that I actually am in therapy, I have a real problem with trusting my body. So it helps you like bring me back. And I know that you are a yoga instructor. And I would love to know more about your experience with that and how it is helpful and what you know about it. Yes. I I love yoga. I've been practicing since 2006, I believe. So 
I'll hit my 20 year mark in three years. That's exciting. I think yoga is an incredible practice. And again, thinking about the origins, you know, in India and Ayurvedic medicine and how yoga is actually a lifestyle. And there's many different ways that you can practice. You can practice yoga in the way that you speak and the way that you behave, but we most traditionally know it through the physical practice of asana. The, the research around yoga and the benefits in physical health, mental health, and in particular digestive health is really growing and is an exciting area. So we do know that there's so many benefits for mind, body health. And I think most of the research has been done in IBS. There's also, I believe, some in IBD. And what we're seeing is that yoga can be beneficial for stress management. It can help improve digestion by promoting relaxation, reducing stress. And also, um, Robin, as you noted, really kind of helping you get back in touch with your body and in a more positive way. I think a lot of people who have chronic conditions or digestive disorders can become fearful of their body. Uh, It can become a place of discomfort or danger. So through yoga, learning to be in these challenging poses, holding it and seeing, okay, this might be uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. And actually, how do I feel afterwards? I feel more grounded. I feel more connected. I feel calm. Um, So I think it it is such a, a beautiful practice that can stimulate blood flow. And then even within yoga, there's a lot of breath work and, you know, diaphragmatic breathing is something that I teach every single one of my patients. And then there's different kind of breath work practices that you can do to balance your nervous system, engage, you know, the parasympathetic nervous system for rest and digest, or even activate the sympathetic nervous system of creating more energy. Uh, So I think that you know, our research into this field can only grow and improve our ability to even individualize this type of practice for patients. But it is something I would be part of that meme because I'm like, oh, have you tried yoga? It's not going to cure you, uh, but it's definitely, I think, a beautiful integrative or complementary practice that can help with that mind, body, brain, gut connection. I didn't have access to like an actual class. I It's probably still packed away, but I probably read at least a half a dozen books. Just finding out the history of yoga, like all the different branches, that's what I, branches of how you can practice yoga and exploring that to find like what I thought would work best for me. So that was like an interesting little side thing that I did for six months. Just, I was like, everyone says practice yoga. It's become a cliche. It has to actually work. And that's what I was telling myself. It can't just be something that people say, like it has to actually work or they, and so many people wouldn't recommend it. And so, yeah, I definitely, you could just take a picture of my face and put it on the meme about practicing, mm-hmm. you know, recommending yoga for people, because I feel like it has been very beneficial over the course of like practicing it when I really, really needed it and then taking a step back and then stepping back into it when I'm like, oh, I'm struggling again. I know it would probably be better if I just stuck with it straight through, but it doesn't happen that way. So yeah. And that's what I honestly think like the beauty of yoga, the beauty of meditation, mindfulness, 
these all of these practices are that they're available for us whenever we need them and whenever we're ready to return to them. And that's actually very normal to kind of go in waxing and waning periods of like, okay, I'm I'm really involved and um, you know, practicing multiple times a week. And then, oh, like I want to actually get into cycling or hit and do something different. But yoga is always available to you. So I think that is really cool and, and beautiful that you found the one that works for you. And out of curiosity, what what type of yoga do you practice? It's different for different phases. I do the breath work and then vinyasa. Mm-hmm. Look, I don't know if I'm saying the right words. Um, yeah, that was, yes. So, so that's, that is the two, but also I will say side note for those of us with J pouches or that their IBD causes a lot of gas. I mean, I have been known to just sit in a happy baby pose for a while, moving things around. So if anybody who is listening, I'm just saying happy baby, happy baby, happy is your baby. Friend. yes, child's pose that can really get the gas out some nice twists that will really get some gas out. So, but yeah, I love, I love the happy baby. It's also just a fun pose to be in. You're thinking of goo goo gaga. (laughs) I started doing yoga for the first time just like a year ago. I mean, it hasn't been very long. I I don't know. I'm very North Dakota I guess it's not what we did. And so, and I go, go to one where there's, it's got some other mix mix mix-ins as well. So it's a little bit of a blizzard or what do they, what's the McDonald's version of a flurry of a, of yoga. I really do like it afterwards. I feel very, like you said, centered and grounded and all these things. And so I, I kind of, every time I go, why don't I do this all the time? And then I go about my day and don't ever do it again until the next time I go back to class. So Dr. Craven, we've talked to you for a very long time now. And so it is time to ask you the last question. And and this is a hard one, I would imagine. But if you had one piece of advice for the IBD community, what would it be? And in your case, again, you are allowed to say for patients, you're allowed to say it for providers, or you can do a combo of the two. Okay. Let's do a little combo. Um, Patients, I would say practice self-care, practice self-advocacy. And for providers, I would say treat every patient as an individual and, and remember their context. Try to get to know who your patient is, what their values are, what they find meaningful, share a photo, share a funny story. Yeah. Treat your patient as an individual and think about those individual goals that they want to meet that will help them feel more whole as a person. I love that answer so much. I actually heard a doctor that Alicia and I both heard at a patient education program got up there on the podium. And he's like, like I always say, if you've seen one IBD patient, you've seen one IBD patient. We're all so different. So yes, please treat your patients as individuals. I love that advice, but it is now time to say goodbye. So thank you so much again for joining us, Dr. Craven. Thank you everybody for listening. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. Hi, this is Dr. Craven. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends.